This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we're going to do something a little different, guys. We are actually, uh, I'm at Viable Paradise when you get this. I'm in the middle of this workshop. I'm very busy, hopefully learning a lot of great things, interacting with some really cool writers. I see a bird's eye view of you just like crouching over your over your laptop, typing away. <laughs> Furiously typing away. Yeah, I honestly don't know. Maybe I'll be in a class learning something. Maybe I'll be swimming with uh, in, with the fishes out in Martha's Vineyard. Um, who knows? Um, but yeah, this uh, what we what we're gonna do this week instead is I recently gave a talk at OMSI, which is the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. Um, which I was very excited. It was a very cool opportunity. And I was able to introduce um, basically the movie American Psycho with this 30-minute lecture that I gave on the adaptation process behind the film and the history behind the film. Um, So, uh, and we posted that as a live stream, but it got a little bit janky and I think it's in two parts. And so I don't know if everybody was able to really check it out. What we have for you instead is the audio I was able to get. so we thought that'd be cool to put it out there. It's going to have audio of like some video clips and you won't be able to see the slides I had, but I think it still should be enjoyable to listen to. And I think you'll still get the, the gist of it. And then the other thing to stay, pay attention to is there's a Q&A at the end, which was not on the live stream, but was actually very cool. So um, make sure to check out the Q&A at the end. Yeah. I mean, it was a, such a cool opportunity. I'm so glad you're able to do that. It seems like it went off well. It seems like everybody liked it. So that was my main yeah. thing is I was really worried I was going to get booed off the stage or something. That didn't happen. People seemed <laughs> no, to think man. it was cool. So Yeah, you killed it. That was that was cool that we got that you got the, the opportunity to do that and to to, you know, talk about something that we cover here on the podcast. Yeah, man. Uh, so yeah, hopefully you enjoy that. And then if not, we will be back next week with our one of our actual regular episodes uh, on the Shining the movie. So now I'd like to turn it over to Luke Elliott. He is the co-host of the Ink to Film podcast and a horror sci-fi writer. Let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes? Okay, good. All right, thank you, Melanie. So yeah, as she said, I'm Luke Elliott. I am tonight presenting about Mary Heron's 2000 film, American Psycho. It's a controversial film. Um, from what was made from what was perhaps an even more controversial book. But also in this important piece of cinematic history, an entertaining bit of black comedy that I think provides a great case study on the ad- adaptation process. Now, I also want to give, in light of recent events, a strong trigger warning for the film. It depicts sexual assault and extreme content. I'll be referencing these scenes in vague and general ways during the presentation, but not showing any clips of them. So before we get into it, why am I up here tonight in front of you? I've read the book, I've seen the movie probably about four times, um, but I'm sure there are people out there who have that beaten. So for starters, I'm a writer, and although my publishing career is still in its early stages, I have been studying writing seriously for about 15 years. I was in grad school when I started to think about pop culture, books, and films in a more analytical way than just as a consumer. I began to treat them as opportunities to learn from the greats, like artifacts to study. And I love to discuss my findings with others. Uh, James Bailey, a good friend of mine, is just as passionate about filmmaking. So we started a podcast called Ink to Film that covered both the forms we love. So our show is the reason I'm presenting. On Ink to Film, we start with a book and discuss it at length, and then we watch the film adapted from it. We always try to understand what's working and what creators might learn about the craft from studying it. We do discuss problematic issues like social concerns as they come up, as well as give our admittedly biased opinions. 
but those both are secondary to trying to understand what fans are connecting with. So I thought it best to approach this presentation tonight much the same way we approach the podcast, and we always start with the book. A month before its scheduled publication, a four-page excerpt of the most depraved section in the novel was leaked, causing widespread moral outrage. In response, publisher Simon & Schuster dropped the book, citing ascetic differences. Brett Easton Ellis did keep his $300,000 advance, though, and the book would be picked up by Random House. Upon release in 1991, it divided critics and readers alike with its brutal depictions of extreme violence, rape, murder, necrophilia, and more. Tammy Bruce, president of the Los Angeles chapter of the National Organization for Women, called it the most misogynistic communication we have ever come across. Many people said that the book should be banned or sold it all to come shrink wrap for safety. This, of course, served as powerful marketing for the novel. So why this novel? Why write it this way? Ellis is a man who courts controversy. He seems to delight in playing with people's perceptions of him and has said numerous outrageous things over the years on all manner of subjects. Regardless of your political leanings, left, right, or center, you can probably find a half dozen things he said that you'll find abhorrent. I certainly have. I think it's clear he enjoys upsetting people. And whether intended or not, he built a career out of being shocking. An American psycho is what put him on the map. So let's hear from Ellis himself. This is a Larry King interview he did in uh, 2016. And in it, he talks about the initial ideas. How did you come up with the idea for American Psycho? I wanted to write a New York novel, and I wanted to write about Wall Street. And I was going to write a novel that was much more earnest and realistic. It was going to be kind of like Less Than Zero set on Wall Street. I'm going to follow a young man, kind of like how, how, what Oliver Stone did with, with the Wall Street, with the Gordon Gecko and the Bud Fox character, but really just concentrate on, on the Bud Fox character. But I was hanging out with these young guys who were working on Wall Street and I was doing research, having dinners with them, going to clubs with them, never being taken to their offices, never being taken to what was going on in their, in their, uh, in their companies. And one night, while I just saw this parade of, um, you know, status, one-upmanship, who has the best suit, who has the best house in the Hamptons, who has the hottest girlfriend, I suddenly, out of the blue, thought, Patrick Bates a serial killer. And he's losing his mind, and the novel is now going to be hallucinatory, it's going to be crazy, we're going to be in his head, instead of writing maybe a third-person novel about a sad, sad banker. But that's what happened, and then I began to rewrite an outline that I was already working on, and that's how American Psycho happened. So, on the podcast, we do love to look for story seeds, not only because I think people find them interesting, but as a, as a writer, I think it's always cool to see where stories come from so you can cultivate your own story seeds. In the novel, Ellis employs several techniques brilliantly to achieve certain desired effects. So what do these techniques achieve? Why use them? What are their strengths? First, the novel features what would become a textbook example of an unreliable narrator with Patrick Bateman. It's a useful device for letting the narrator mislead the reader in a way that implies they are not credible, which invites you to read between the lines to discover the truth. He also fills the book with long stream-of-consciousness descriptions of Bateman's beauty regimen, opinions on menswear, and pop culture critiques, which come interspersed with brutal accounts of rape and murder. So pages of this novel go by without so much as a paragraph break. It feels like you're getting Bateman's thoughts straight from the tap, eschewing traditional storytelling conventions. 
Now, he also uses first person, which means I. So, for example, I slapped a man, and then I slapped a second larger man. Okay, when done well, this reduces the distance between the reader and the story. It feels like the person is telling you directly about their experiences in the same way people do in real life. Now, he also uses present tense. For example, I slap the second, even larger man, and I leap into the back of my Uber. Floor it. This puts the reader into the scene, and so it seems to be unfolding right in front of them in real time. Again, the effect shortens the distance. So these things combine to force you into Bateman's shoes. Ellis holds your hand to the stove so that when he wants to burn you, he can burn you badly. And that's where the shocking content comes in. It zaps your system, turns the stomach, makes you, the reader, angry, sad, appalled. It's affecting stuff. And you find no help in the tone of the prose either, as his style is to present the story as it is, in a neutral, affectless manner, free of judgment. So, if that's how, then what is the story? Is it satire? Is it horror? Is it serious literature? It might be called yuppie horror, a genre described in the 1996 article by Barry K. Grant called Rich and Strange, the Yuppie Horror Film. He proposed it as an alternate form of horror that focuses on the anxieties of late-stage capitalism. It highlights the fear and guilt experienced by the wealthy as they are confronted with the widening gulf between them and the vengeful destitute who are being crushed by the very system that lifts them up. Yuppie, by the way, is a slang term defined as a young person with a well-paid job and a fashionable lifestyle. The term rose to prominence in the 1980s, the decade the book and the film are both set. I think yuppie horror is appropriate, because both the novel and film adaptation seem determined to point out that an identity built on other people's perceptions of you and your status, especially derived from material wealth, is maddening to the point of insanity. An insatiable greed arises from a misguided attempt to combat the emptiness. I believe this theory is backed up by this quote by Ellis, where he about his state of mind while writing this book. I was slipping into a consumerist kind of void that was supposed to give me confidence and make me feel good about myself, but it just made me feel worse and worse and worse. I think you can see the clearest example of this with the inciting incident. Paul Owen, Paul Allen in the film, threatens Bateman's material worth, his social standing, his wealth, his status among the elites. Bateman's response, when bested, is to threaten Paul's mortality. This is where yuppie horror meets traditional horror of the slasher film. Bateman looks to topple Paul from his high status with the only way he can, murder. But viewing American Psycho as merely a critique of capitalism, narcissism, and men's vanity, which it definitely skewers brilliantly, still fails to explain the sexualized violence. So I'm going to play another clip. This is uh, Ellis again, and he's talking about how he views morality in his fiction. I really wasn't that concerned about morality in my fiction. I think the morality is there basically because um, I'm a satirist on a, on, on, on a certain level. I'm a satirist. And I think within, uh, if you are a satirist, you are pointing out problems that you find in the world and in society and in the culture. And I think on that level, it automatically makes you a moralist um, because you're doing something that's Moral. You're pointing out flaws in a system. Um, but in terms of why I write and what makes me want to create art, I can't define. And it is not because I wake up in the morning and I say, I'm a moralist and I must show the world that I'm a moralist and that the things that are happening out in that world are immoral and it's my job to fix that. It was a style that I was very interested in and I was um, uh, 
very surprised by the effects that kind of neutrality of style um, uh, achieved when laid against extreme acts. And that was an artistic decision that to me at the time seemed very interesting, but also I think probably taken from people like Warhol, who was using the same kind of uh, device in a way, having that kind of neutral gaze in the face of horror. My books come from a very, very personal place, and I don't mean to be prescient about anything, and I don't mean to make any kind of sweeping statements about the state of the world. I think audiences read my books and feel that they are messages from the home front or whatever, when in reality they're, um, I don't know, they're, they're reflections of how I was feeling during the years that I wrote the books. So yeah, I think it's interesting that he wants to take credit there for the good things in his, in his fiction, but as long as no one labels him a moralist. So Ellis claims he's pointing out flaws in a system. If we grant him that, then maybe the violence against women was included to demonstrate flaws in the patriarchal system that Bateman thrives in. And so the repugnant way that he, and by extension America, views women is an indictment of that system. As Bateman gets more psychotic over the course of the story, his need to inflict harm and remind himself of his superiority escalates. It's clear that in Bateman's mind, rape and murder is the ultimate way to assert power. To dominate women, he views only as meat, as things to possess, as an element of status, and convince himself of his own worth. This all may sound pretty unentertaining, but the genius comes in the humor that the book, and to an even greater extent the movie, is able to achieve despite the heavy subject matter. Whether it's Bateman's epic dance moves or the hilarious business card throwdown, it's genuinely funny. So speaking of the film, I think it's past time we get into it. The task of adapting the book before director Mary Heron was daunting. She needed to highlight the social satire she appreciated about the book, but avoid having her movie condemned as misogynistic. To that end, she brought on screenwriter Guinevere Turner to help ensure the controversial material was still present, since they both found it essential to the story, but done in a non-exploitative as a way as possible. More on Guinevere Turner in a minute, but first I want to let Huey Lewis introduce the film. So if you, do, if you haven't seen the movie, you're probably wondering why Huey Lewis, but you'll find out. Now, this, this scene I'm going to show, it's like a... It's like a it's like a spoof, but it is kind of a visual spoiler for an early scene in the film. So if you really don't want to be spoiled, you can just kind of look away and listen, and you should be fine. Do you like American Psycho? It's okay. <laughs> Although originally polarizing to audiences and critics alike, it developed a much-deserved cult following when released on digital video disc, or DVD. There it found a second life, and really came into its own, commercially and artistically. The movie works, both as a grim examination of male vanity, while also maintaining real genre of thrills, justifying these tonal shifts by placing the audience inside the head of the duplicious lead character. Christian Bale's dynamite performance gives it a big boost. <laughs> the role almost went to Leo, but nobody could have brought that certain pathos and charisma to it quite like Bale, a role he later recalled a shade of in Christopher Nolan's Batman pictures. Hey. Yes, Al? Why are there newspapers all over the place? Is that like a Huey Lewis on the news joke or something? <laughs> no, Al. Really? Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. 
In 2005, Lionsgate released this. <laughs> I think it's an undisputed masterpiece. A movie so entertaining, most people probably don't listen to the message. Most people probably don't listen to the But they should, because it's not just a great character study, but a sardonic metaphor for 1980s greed and materialism. Hey, Al! Try parodying one of my songs now, you stupid bastard. <laughs> I want a new dark. So, uh, it was reported that Huey, uh, when, the, when the book first came out, was actually upset that his music was in there. Um, but it seems that he's come around. <laughs> So let's get back to screenwriter Guinevere Turner. She was influential in making this film successful. That's her. If you've seen the movie, you might recognize that she actually plays a role in it. Fairly small one. In an interview with Dazed Magazine in 2014 about how American Psycho became a feminist film, she says, quote, I knew one thing I was getting myself into was having nightmares, and Mary did too. We went away together to really focus on the book and just read passages to each other and decide what we thought should be in the movie and what sort of movie it should be. And we would just wake up every morning and say, so what part of the book did you have a nightmare about? End quote. So to me, this really demonstrates how the pair approached the material. They did not shy away from the violence, but instead they wanted to include what the most needed parts in order to evoke that same nightmare-inducing effect. She goes on to say, to me, it's most definitely a feminist film. Brett really thought he was writing a feminist book. I remember seeing him speak and really talk about that, and how he was actually hurt and shocked that feminists spoke out against his book because he thought he was writing a feminist book. And that's the way what we saw in it. It's just that he went all crazy with it, so it's hard to get past the gruesomeness. Another conversation we had all the time is at what point does it go from satire to exploitation, and not the good kind of exploitation that everybody thinks is so cool, but people getting off on how violent it is. End quote. This fear, of course, is what leads to the majority of criticism about the film. So I think the question remains, is it a good thing for this film to exist, knowing that truly evil acts could be carried out in its name? Or what of the trauma that could be inflicted on survivors who watch it? I'd like to share some excerpts from a feminist writer named Camilla Collar from an article she wrote in Medium Magazine called American Psycho and the Gender Politics of Axe Murder. She gives a ringing endorsement and a dismissal of detractors. Now the strong language here is all hers. Quote, the misguided critics of the film had the same problem as the misguided critics of the book, from Roger Ebert apparently thinking the thesis of the novel was bloodlust, to all the feminists calling the story misogynistic, almost every pissed-off voice in this conversation had something in common. They've all fallen victim to the same scourge that's been plaguing the narrative arts for years, employing the same sophomoric fallacy that everyone needs to unlearn right now. They all assume one stupid thing that depicting something is the same as endorsing something, end quote. Now, I really appreciate the sentiment. I think it's a common pitfall in some film and literary criticism that refuses to look for the reason behind the objectionable content to see what point is trying to be made. Caller goes on. We shouldn't need the perpetrator of misdeeds on the screen or the page to wear a big black hat just so we know that he's bad. Yes, Patrick Bateman is the main character. No, that doesn't automatically make him a hero. Sometimes the director wants you to see what's happening on screen and simply know that it's bad. Depiction does not equal endorsement. Far from it, depiction is often the tool of the social whistleblowers. End quote. So that's all well and good, but the risk of misinterpretation remains. 
So should the artist be held partially responsible when it happens? I think this is an ongoing conversation in pop culture, whether directly or indirectly, that comes up time and again when new content is released featuring situations, scenes, or characters that audiences find objectionable. I only intended to point out flaws in the system, a creator might say, as Ellis does. But is authorial intent king, or does, and does it make them immune to this sort of criticism? Or could society maybe use a little more guidance or, and censorship for its betterment? Who decides what's objectionable? I don't know the answer, but I think it's an important question. So where does this destructive wheel begin? Where does it end? What's the best way to disrupt it? The censors are making the claim that if you disrupt the artist's depiction of what they see, it will stop imitators. Is that right? I think about it a lot, and maybe we all should a little more, but let's get back to the adaptation of the movie. What other challenges faced Mary Heron in adapting this movie? Namely, what do you do as a director when you are making a movie from a book that has no plot? <laughs> let's hear from her. So this is a clip that she did uh, with Charlie Rose, so I apologize for that. What's the difficult challenge for you in terms of making this? Was it the violence? Was it something else? Was it, you know, how um, they came out making sure that, that you caught the spirit of faith? Well, I think, I think, I think there's a, a tonal thing, which... I, one of the things I liked in the book, I thought was really interesting in the book, was that it shifted totally abruptly from a social, social satire, a comic scene, to something you know, horrifying and upsetting. And I wanted, I wanted that abruptness that you just, would just, in a way, you wouldn't know where you were. Some of them, like in the business card scene, the next scene is what is a disturbing scene. Um, so it was, it was making that decision to go with those abrupt shifts in tone. And then I guess the, the sort of technical problem was. Uh, the fact that there isn't an obvious plot, I mean, it's not a, a, it's not a serial killer story in the sense that they have the pursuit, the hunter and the hunted, and, 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 the, and the capture. So I had to kind of give it more the facade of a plot, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it has a more traditional plot. <coughs> you had to actually select the pivotal moments of the film and then find a way to link them together. And restructure it. So, so I, I think basically it's a very, it's very faithful to the book. All the elements are from the book, but, but the order is, is different. Sometimes I combine elements, shifted scenes. Who did this? Well, Vera Turner and I did this movie play together. But even does actually have an arc. What's in R? He goes from psychopath to psychotic. <laughs> I like that quote from Bill. Um, we'll return to that in a second, but I think I want to focus a little bit on what uh, Mary Heron said about the plot. So she said she included a facade of a plot, and I think it makes the movie easier to follow. I think she also works to create more cause and effect between Bateman's actions and reactions throughout, at least more than we got in the book. Another trick she employs is foreshadowing scenes that follow with hints given during Bateman's exercise routine, but I won't spoil them. This narrative call and response feels structurally satisfying to the audience. Another of her clever techniques is what she did with the series of music review chapters that basically interrupt the book. She puts them into monologue scenes where Bateman menaces people, patronizes them, or prepares to kill them. I think both Heron and Bale identified the ridiculousness of those sections and interjected that into his performance, making it over the top and absurd. There's something deeply wrong with this guy, and by extension, the part of society he represents. 
So Bale identified Bateman's unusual arc in the film, and I believe that arc is important to understanding the way the movie ends. Now, I can't really talk about the ending without spoiling it, so as much as I'd like to, but I think there's a lot there to unpack. So, sorry. <laughs> um, my hope is that first-time viewers will be following this psychopath to psychotic arc closely. So I'm going to play one more clip. This Bale's talking about what it was like portraying Bateman. This is from that same interview, so sorry again for Charlie Rose. You get called for people saying, forget, do not do this. It is, know, it is not good for you. Yeah, but I had an awful lot of calls saying it was going to be career suicide. I think we could, a lot of people would talk about uh, Anthony Perkins in Psycho and say, you know, once you play a villain like that, you never get to play anything else because you're stuck in everybody's imagination. It's that person. But Bateman is not a, I could never really view him just as a villain. Um, pure and simple, because he's so ridiculous, you know? He's not your ordinary kind of Hannibal Lecter kind of uh, scary villain, uh, because you laugh at him, you know, never with him at all. So I was never really concerned not to him take any of those career suicide threats seriously. In fact, it's sort of, exactly, it sort of was exciting. <laughs> what do you like about Patrick Bain? What do I like? Yeah. Um, I like nothing about him. I attempt to make him sympathetic at all. But what makes him entertaining yeah. is the fact that 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 but at the same time he finds himself in so many ridiculous situations and reacts in such a ridiculous manner. You know, he's certainly somebody that I wouldn't want to, you know, be. Uh, at a table with the meeting, but I certainly want to eavesdrop on this conversation. <laughs> so, I think that, that, that really points out something a lot of people like, right? Like, Bateman, he's not likable, but he's interesting. The impressiveness of Bale's commitment to this role can't be understated. He worked out for months to achieve an Olympic athlete level of physique that was referenced in the book. His physicality and charisma helped create some of the most iconic scenes in the movie, which in a second or third viewing becomes even more apparent in my opinion. So by now, if you don't already know, you're probably wondering what happens to Bateman. What does it all lead to? You have questions. Some on the screen, perhaps, probably others as well. And I'd love to discuss them with all of you. We do in fact talk a lot more about these things on our pair of episodes covering the book and then the film on the podcast, but to do so here would be a spoiler. So instead of getting into the big questions posed by the film's final scenes, I thought I'd share some fun facts I found in my research. So only a few years ago, a Twitter user uncovered a mistake repeated on all the business cards in the famous showdown business card scene. Could it be intentional? Maybe. Can you spot it? Might be kind of hard. Acquisitions is misspelled on all of them in the same way. So maybe it's intentional, but I think for it to be on all of them, Probably not. Probably more an, an unfortunate prop mistake. So also very early on, several other actors were attached to star, at least briefly, as Patrick Bateman. The list includes heavyweights like Johnny Depp, Edward Norton, Ewan McGregor. But even after Bale and had been cast and Mary Heron had been set to direct, the novel was almost taken away from them and given to Oliver Stone with Leonardo DiCaprio to star fresh off his success with Titanic. Huey Lewis mentioned this earlier. So rumors of a bad table read might be the real reason for this withdrawal, but it's also said that he backed out after being talked out of the role due to concerns he'd be typecast as a psychopath going forward.
So clearly this was an issue for Baal in the long run. And finally, in something truly silly, for a time, David Cronenberg was attached to the film, and it's said that his version ended in a big musical number atop the Empire State Building. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, it seems somebody could, because there is a musical adaptation of American Psycho. It's directed by Rupert Gould, with music and lyrics written by Duncan Sheik. It had runs in 2013 in London, starring Matt Smith of Doctor Who fame, and in 2016 on Broadway, starring Benjamin Walker. Now, you can find some pretty incredible clips on YouTube if you search, but I'm running out of time, so I won't pull them up. The musical version of Bateman seems far removed to me from the dark mind on display in the book, but sometimes that's the nature of adaptation. With every new incarnation of the material, changes of form are made to fit another person's vision and unique demands of the new medium. Whether for better or for worse, I always find that process fascinating. So that's all I have for you. I do believe we're going to have a short Q&A uh, now, but I want to thank you all so much for listening and thank Omzi for having me, and I hope you all enjoy the movie. So the q and I think I'm just going to have people raise hands. It could be about the movie. I'll try and answer it. It could be about podcasting, about our podcast, about writing, anything. Anything else? <laughs> Yes. What's your favorite piece that you've done recently on the podcast? On the podcast that I've done recently? Yep. Um, I'm going to shout out one that I felt like should have gotten a lot more downloads than it did. And uh, <laughs> that was Jaws. Uh, I love, that's actually our oldest movie we've done so far. And I loved going back and really appreciated that movie a lot more after reading the book. So, yeah, that was a, it was a really good one. I was proud of that episode. Anybody else? Yes. Uh, have you read The Rules of Attraction? I have not. Yes. So, um, it's not really a spoiler alert, but uh, Patrick Bateman actually shows up in the book. Oh, I have heard that. It's about his brother, Sean Bateman, at a <laughs> college, uh, I guess somewhere in New England, I think, if I remember correctly. And I was just curious if anybody knew like what timeline he shows up in that book at. Like, at what point in this, I guess, story arc does he make an appearance in that book? Well, I don't know. Does anybody know an answer to that? In uh, Rules of Attraction, he's talking to him on the, cell, on the uh, payphone. If you watch the movie, it's James Vanderbeek talking, and he's uh, Paul calls him from when he's in the city, and he's like, "Oh, is this Patrick?" That's when he's talking to when he thinks he's his brother. But uh, in the book, he shows up when they go uh, shopping for ties. <laughs> yeah, he expounds wildly for several chapters on the glories of ties. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, any other questions? Yes? Which did you prefer more, the book or the movie? Uh, so, it's probably controversial, but I think I prefer the movie. Um, I think the movie's funnier, in my opinion. Um, and I did enjoy the book, and I, and I certainly recognize that it's the source, you know, so I always have a huge respect for that. Um, but yeah, I think personally I like the movie better. Have you other uh, Fred Easton Ellis books? I have not, because uh, this was my first time reading him, was when I covered it on the podcast, and this was only a few months ago. So, but, I mean, he's, he seems to be a really brilliant writer who's definitely willing to try some pretty crazy stuff. <laughs> try uh, Less Than Zero. With, it's also a movie with Robert Downey Jr. back in the 80s, but he was in his drug craze, so it's uh, kind of relevant, and it's really interesting to see the correlation between where they make it. That's cool that it has a movie adaptation, too. I'll put it on the list.
maybe we'll cover it. Nice. <laughs> yes, fun. Do you know if there was difficulty having this film held by a female director and a female scriptwriter? Well, I, I mean, even like back then, that would have been even more of a challenge than this. Yeah. It seems like an incredibly smart, creative decision. But what was? Do you know anything about kind of the back? Yeah. So what I understand is that uh, I think people like the idea of it because it would kind of undercut the criticism of it being misogynistic to say, well, it's you know being directed by a woman. Um, but then it was almost given to Oliver Stone, so I think that would have been a huge mistake to do. Um, but, but Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner both said they got tons of death threats um, over this, that they were, you know, people would shout at them when they were in restaurants and stuff, that it was, it was still, this movie was incredibly controversial when it came out as well, and the fact that they were women didn't necessarily protect them from that. And a lot of people kind of accused them of selling out, like just doing it for the money, that kind of thing. Yes? Do you ever... Uh like rate the movies on how good of an adaptation they are to the novel. Yeah. And follow up question: What is the best adaptation that you've done <laughs> and the worst one? Okay. Uh, so we don't typically assign like a numerical rating or anything. I think it's more kind of between the lines of what we're saying about it. Um, mainly because we we kind of approach it like we're trying to learn from it, right? And and we also don't want to like just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's you know objectively bad because um, many people may love it. Um, so, so yeah, but not really. <laughs> but as far as what I think the best adaptation, I mean, I, I look at something like uh, Die Hard, or I look at something like Jaws, where I feel like it really elevated the material and took it to another level. Um, but that's kind of a different thing. Um, then you have like really faithful adaptations, which actually American Psycho is pretty faithful. Um, so that's pretty up there. Uh, so yeah, it depends on what you mean by best, I guess. What results in the best movie? Um, we're covering The Shining right now. And I'm really excited to watch that because I know that's a great movie. And I've seen it a bunch of times, but after reading the book again, I'm just amped up for that. Um, as far as the worst, we covered Clive Barker's Rawhead Rex, which is not a very well-known short story, but it is a good one. Um, but the movie is atrocious. And so we, we wanted to try like watching a really, really bad like B-horror movie from the 80s. So we had a lot of fun with that. Yes? Have you done No Country for Old Men? No, but I want to. That is that is high on the list. It's a direct, like, uh, direct adaptation, word for word. It's one of the most faithful adaptations, I think, exists really? in film. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So I absolutely want to cover it. That's uh, definitely, and The Road by Cormac McCarthy, both. Yes, over here. You ever seen uh, on YouTube, uh, channel Cinefix, they do a lot yep. of what's the difference between mm -hmm. the, the book and the movie? Yeah, I do. I like that series. I too. Yeah, it's cool. It's um, it's very rapid fire. They give you a lot of cool facts. Um, they show a lot of stuff visually. Our our podcast is a lot more of a conversation about it, and and maybe like a deeper dive into the craft. Um, but I always watch that after because I don't want to watch it first and have it affect the way I'm going to cover something. I saw that. Yeah. The miniseries. Yeah, we're probably not going to do the miniseries, um, mainly just because I don't know if we want to devote an entire episode to it. <laughs> um, we might watch it and release it as a bonus episode for our patrons. We do that sometimes if they're interested in that sort of thing. Um, but I kind of like, we already take, like we're taking the entire month of October to cover The, the Shining. So if, you, if we do such a deep dive that, you know, adding more episodes just makes it longer and longer means we can get to less stuff. So, I, yeah, I'm... I would, I would watch it, but I don't think I'm going to do an episode about it. Yes? 
For fun, I just recently watched both the miniseries version of The Shining and the movie. Yeah. And like, hopefully you'll have time to at least watch them, uh-huh. take notes so you can reference it. But the differences between the two and like what's similar is fascinating. Really? Okay, yeah, cool. Like if you're into like how does the original text map into the end like screenplay, mm-hmm. like these are radically different interpretations. And they both work in different ways. Cool, man. Yeah, I'll talk to my co-host about it. We'll see what he says. I, I'm, yeah, I'm intrigued. I think I will at least, at least watch it. Yes, way up there. Um, when it's carried through your podcast, uh-huh. do you just review the um, film and movie, or do you go back to any of the like critical um, film adaptation theory that's been written about both? I know that there's a few journals that, that go over film adaptation. Um, I mean, not really, because I don't want... I do after the fact sometimes, but I don't really want it to affect my like kind of cold reaction to it. Um, I try and because I think if I if I did that and I know other podcasts do, then what you end up doing is kind of just like telling everybody all the stuff you read. Just kind of what the presentation was tonight. But um, we try not to do that on the show because I wanted it to be more about um, kind of like drawing on my history and studying writing and like what I can find out of it without just parroting things other people have said. Um, but it depends on the movie. Like sometimes if I feel like there's something really interesting out there, I might check it out um, just because I feel like it's important to talk about. Um, I know I did a lot of research for American Psycho, for example, because it's so controversial. I was kind of worried about covering it and I didn't want it to become like, you know, a problem. So I was, I was like, I'm going to look into what's been said about this movie after the fact. And that's where all this stuff came from, because I thought it was really interesting. Way up there. Uh, definitely a book. <laughs> um, I've actually, I have written a novel. Um, it is not out. Um, it is currently shelved, but I am writing another novel that I'm almost done with and I'm really excited about. That one's a sci-fi. Um, I, I write genre. I write short stories. I have a short story that was published earlier this year in Metaphorosis magazine called Always Dawn to Forever Night. And it's like a fantasy short story. Um, so I love writing fiction. Um, screenplays are tricky. It's like a, It's a different form and I feel like I probably don't want to just dive into it and think I'm going to be successful, but would I ever try it? Sure, I might. Um, especially, yeah, the more I do this sort of thing, because it, it is a fun thing to think about. So on the other hand, yeah. Um, I, I've loved American Psycho since I was a senior in high school, and I remember telling my AP Lit teacher, like, have you seen this movie? It's so great. And he like, looked at me with like, such a shock in his eyes, like, why are you watching this movie? Mm-hmm. And then I read the book when I was in college, and I mean, I've I've seen the movie countless times since then, and I love it, and it, it makes me think a lot, because I am a woman, thinking a lot about the way women are fascinated with true crime, and kind of that sort of, uh, it's really on the rise, I feel like, in pop culture now, and like with podcasts like My Favorite Murder, and yeah. things like that, and I was curious if in your research, if you at all encountered, because I know there's a lot of feminist critique against American Psycho, and you kind of presented some points why maybe that could be wrong, mm-hmm. But I didn't know if you found any interesting like cross section between like the way true crime is very popular amongst like female readers and then more like I know what Mary's like was more like horror, yeah. but which is slightly different, but just curious. Yeah, I mean you know I have I've i I think I've watched some like YouTube videos about that and listened to some stuff, but I'm I'm drawing a blank on like what the source was. But I have heard that discussed. 
And it, it's a lot of people like trying to figure out why that is. Why, especially women, are very big fans of true crime about serial killers who target women, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. There is a fascination there, and that's something we talked about on the podcast more than I got into here. I think uh, Ellis did a lot of great research into like the mind of a serial killer, and you can see a lot of clever ways that he sets up these like patterns with Bateman where he'll do certain things and then it'll become a certain pattern which is a very big serial killer thing um yeah I mean and he looks up to like Ed Gein and all these people he's talking about him all the time in the book and it almost seems to me like he's competing with them like it's that one-upsmanship with the business card scene like everybody's got to be better he does that with serial killers and I think that's why he escalates so much in the book too is that he is kind of like, he's got to be the best serial killer, the grossest, you know, most crazy murders. But it's all status for him. And, you know, think about that with the ending, too, which I won't get into. All right, any other questions? One more. One more? One more question? And... Nope? Okay. All right, thanks a lot. All right, so hopefully you enjoyed that. That was my presentation at OMSI. Um, I was proud of it. I thought it went well. Yeah, man. I'm, again, that was so cool that, that you got the opportunity to do that in a museum. Like, that. that's yeah. so much fun. We'll see. Maybe it'll, hopefully it'll happen again. Knock on wood. That would be really cool. I'd love to do stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so if, if, uh, if you wanted to help this podcast, a great way to do it is to become a patron. And uh, we wanted to shout out uh, another, another patron of ours, uh, Andrew M., uh, he's been he's been helping us from near the beginning, and and we really appreciate his support. And if you wanted to find out how you can support us, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Yeah, thank you again for being a patron. If you wanted to connect with us, we're also on social media on Facebook. We actually have a group called the Council of Inklings that a lot of people have joined up to this point, and um, it's just a great way to have a conversation about any of the things that we're covering or anything you'd like us to cover. And, and I, I love to see the conversations that go on in there and, and get involved whenever I can. Yeah, and we sometimes put polls up in there and we, we look for feedback. So that's the best way like to affect the show going forward other than being a patron. <laughs> it's the best free way to do it. Yeah, and we're also on Twitter and Instagram. All of those are at ink to film Yep, absolutely. And if you would like to reach out to us more directly, you can send us an email to uh, inktofilm at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And another way to help out the podcast is to leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. But we are getting pretty close to that 50 that we uh, number of reviews so that close, we've been looking right, 40, for. 47, I think, as of today. Yeah, so we're looking forward to getting to 50 here soon. But if you wanted to help us out, that would be another great way. We will be back next week for The Shining Film and a more regular coverage. And we hope you join us for that. But uh, until then. Thanks for listening.